So one of the things that I've been finding um, very moving in our practice meetings, and it's surprising how often it seems to be happening, maybe as we settle further into the retreat, is when people come in and say something like, um, well, I didn't bring this this up before because I, I wasn't sure if it was too silly. Um, but actually what's been preoccupying a lot of my attention is dot, 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 dot. Uh, and what comes out never, never feels silly. And, uh, you know, it touches me that there's a level of trust developing that uh, people feel safe to do that. And also um, that there's a trust in the, the value of recognizing that everything belongs in the domain of practice, that uh, there's a value to fully acknowledging and attending to uh, everything that's actually being experienced. And more often than not, these kinds of things are connected with something to do with the body, with a health concern or maybe an unhealthy habit that we have or worries around aspects of aging or our body image or physical fitness and so on. So for some of us on retreat, our health issues are necessarily kind of really upfront as a given of our retreat experience. But for others of us, these sorts of things are just there kind of more in the background. Um, but even if that's so, uh, in the silence of retreat, uh, it can be a bit like a hothouse for our anxieties. So I think I might be misquoting him, but uh, I think Utejaniya said something like, mindfulness magnifies our experience in the way that a magnifying glass might, and delusion exaggerates it. <laughs> And I've noticed on my own retreats, sometimes if it's something that's really concrete, it can be actually easier. So there was a month-long retreat I was on once and I noticed a, a, a large lump in my groin. And I knew immediately that that was something that needed to be checked out. And somehow it felt quite easy to just, you know, shelve that and say, OK, when I'm home in 10 days time, I'm going to immediately make an appointment and see the doctor. And yet on another month-long retreat I did, I had a very small lump on my leg and within a day or two I was in my mind having my leg amputated. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes like a, a little unexplained ache or pain, can, uh, our imagination can just run riot. And then knowing that, we can sometimes swing to an opposite extreme. So I also on a long retreat, once I came, I just had some surgery and that had all gone very well. But there was a kind of um, incidental wound that I had that wasn't healing properly. And I sort of thought, well, I'll just be equanimous about this and it will take care of itself. And I was doing my equanimity and it didn't take care of itself and it got infected. And I ended up having to have three trips to the Barry Clinic and antibiotics. So we can sort of not bother about the body and then find that actually it needed more attention. And on that same retreat, I also um, was doing what I thought was a renunciation practice of not washing my hair. 
So I was going to go for three months without washing my hair, but I think I made it for two. And I thought, okay, I'm saving water, I'm protecting the environment, I'm not being vain, and so forth. And then I, I did ask my, uh, my, one of my teachers to let me know if I started to smell. Uh, but once I'd abandoned this practice, I realized that what was really going on underneath it was this kind of unacknowledged fantasy that if I went through this process, because some of you might know that if you don't wash your hair, it's sometimes said it's supposed to start self-cleaning and all the natural oils will come into a perfect state of balance. And I had this (laughs) fantasy, I think, that I was suddenly going to have the hair that I had 20 years ago. And of course, that's not possible. So we have all these sort of personal dramas that can be going on our, on our retreat and we can see them as an interference with our practice. Uh, what we feel we're meant to be doing and we probably contribute to this impression that you have is reporting on uh, how our sitting and walking meditation are going and the insights that we're having. And we think that we should be able to sort all this other stuff out by ourselves so that we can get on with our proper practice and it's kind of ironic that we we want to have these meditative insights into impermanence into not self and emptiness and yet maybe worth investigating that the mind uh, that wants to see arising and passing away maybe as some sort of imagined blissful experience, doesn't actually want to look at some of the arising and passing away that's happening right under our nose. But what if this is equally the territory of our practice? Can we use these concerns as food for our practice rather than try to use the practice to circumvent them? Because these teachings, to be meaningful, they really need to touch every aspect of our life of what it means to be a human being, a living being, and a mortal being. So tonight I want to um, reflect on part of uh, uh, the Upajatana Sutta. Uh, Some of you will recognize this in a moment uh, on the five... uh, frequent recollections or daily recollections. So this is what the Sutta says. There are these five facts that one should reflect upon often, whether one is a woman or a man, lay or ordained. Which five? I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. This is the first fact that one should reflect on often. I'm of the nature to sicken, I've not gone beyond sickness. I'm of the nature to die, I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, and abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. These are the five facts that one should reflect on often, whether one is a woman or a man, lay or ordained. So the first three of these, uh, 
you might recognize as the three heavenly messengers, three of the four heavenly messengers. As the legend goes, uh, when the Buddha um, left his palace, uh, where his father had tried to shelter him from ever encountering these things, he saw an old person, a sick person, and a corpse. And he had this realization that this is also going to happen to me and to everybody I know. And that being so, what is worth doing and having in life? And then he saw the Samana, the spiritual seeker, and that impacted him so profoundly that he decided to leave home in search. So in this this talk, I want to actually just reflect on the first three uh, of these uh, recollections and I'll come back to uh, the later part later and as Greg has also already given us a talk on karma. So looking at these first three contemplations. And as I was planning to talk on this topic, I noticed a a certain hesitation because I'm aware that compared with many of you sitting here in this room, that so far I've lived a fairly um, sheltered life in terms of direct personal experience of some of these things. So um, not really any direct personal exposure to life-threatening accident or illness or chronic disease or even to death in my immediate nuclear family. But also in many ways that makes this teaching even more urgent. And the Buddha did emphasize that everybody without exception should reflect in this way. Precisely because it's so easy for the mind to make this into somebody else's problem. And then when these things do surface in our own lives, the mind kind of tries to wish them away. And of course, when we look a bit further, for me too, um, you know, none of these things are really strangers to me either. And if this were a workshop and not deep in the middle of a silent retreat, I think it would be very interesting and instructive to... Uh, have some shows of hands. How many of us have experienced or are experiencing some kind of anxiety or fear or aversion around aging or the vulnerabilities of our body? How many of us have been unwell? How many of us have had a serious or a life-threatening illness or and maybe living even now with even a terminal diagnosis, or have loved ones for whom that's happened. How many of us have been involved in a serious accident or had loved ones in that situation? And even though we're all dying by virtue of being alive, how many of us have experienced uh, as unexpected the loss of friends and family or have seen them fade away through illness and old age? Probably many of us also have had loved ones or friends take their own lives. 
So if we could look into the catalogue of loss in each other's lives, I wonder how that would change how we feel about one another, especially those people here to, to, towards whom we might be feeling some kind of aversion. It's said that an enemy is a person whose story we haven't heard. So all those projections that we have onto one another, maybe that that person whose youthful vitality we find ourselves envying, you know, what have they already been asked to face in terms of major health issues and losses in their life? Or that annoyingly perfect yogi, you know, what's the reality of their life? Or that older person, we really don't know what they have weathered or how they're experiencing the challenges and the discomforts and the inconveniences of the aging process as it's unfolding for them. We have no idea which one of us here will be the first to die, even though Greg seems to keep mentioning it. I hope he's not going to expire on one of his walking meditations. (laughs) So when when we stop and consider, we realize that aging and illness and death are inescapable facts of life and not something that's wrong with us or a sign of personal failure. One of the best-known stories in the Pali Canon, as I'm sure many of you know, is the story of Kisa Gotami, the young mother whose uh, baby son died. And in her distress, uh, she, she knew that the Buddha was staying nearby and she went to the Buddha with her, the body of her baby son and said, please, please, will you do something to bring him back to life? And the Buddha looked at her with great compassion and also equanimity and said to her, well, I would like you to go round to uh, the houses in the town and uh, find a mustard seed from the house where nobody has died. And when you bring me the mustard seed, I will bring your son back to life. And of course, she went from door to door and every time she knocked on a door and said, has anybody died in this house? Uh, The answer was yes. And eventually she realized that she wasn't going to find this mustard seed anywhere and recognized that uh, both she and her son were not alone and began to be able to accept that loss. And she went back to the Buddha and uh, became a a disciple and eventually became one of the first women arahants. So let's look at these contemplations. The first one. I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. Or if we want to put it maybe in a slightly um, gentler way to ourselves that makes it uh, easier to contemplate. And this comes from our friend, again, Caroline Jones at the Forest Refuge. How about breathing in gently? I lovingly remember that this body is aging. 
So as you sit just now, just feeling into the question, how is aging revealing itself in your experience right now at this point in your life? Contemplating this internally in this body as you sense it. And as you observe it externally. And what you notice too in other bodies about the aging process. So I did this recently. Uh, Devon and I were on a, an insight dialogue retreat, which is a, um, a Vipassana practice that's done in in relationship and uh, we were exploring this as a, as a contemplation in, in dyads how is aging uh, being experienced in your life revealing itself in your experience and I found myself doing this exercise with the person who was the oldest person on the retreat And it was really interesting for me to sit down face to face with a partner who was significantly older than me. And I noticed that one of the first thoughts or impressions that popped into my my mind was, well, aging is your problem, but it's not mine. I, I became suddenly very conscious of my relative health and strength and vitality. And yet I'm at a really interesting time, I feel, in my life. I've had two retreats this year that I've taught where I've been the oldest person in the room on the teaching team and amongst the yogis. Actually, one I was the second oldest, the other one I was the oldest. And I notice how the perception completely shifts. And so it becomes almost easier to see these conceits arising than than when I was swimming in kind of one uh, less... uh, kind of middle-of-the-road status, I would say. So my, this partner and I, in this, in this inquiry, we, we spoke together about the ways that evidence of ageing was being felt and observed in our bodies as we sat there and in the circumstances of our lives. But for me, the really interesting thing that we both noticed was that in the activity of just being present with one another and our experience in the moment and speaking of our experience, the sense of aging and age actually dissolved. That it came and went with the identification with the body and with the the stuff of our lives and with our stories. But actually what was present in that moment was just awareness presence, connection, and kindness. And these things seem to be ageless. So turning attention directly towards the knowing of aging in the moment, it also put us in touch with something that was beyond aging, that was both peaceful and fearless. So what does the Buddha say about why we do this reflection? 
Based on what line of reasoning should one often reflect that I am of the nature to age, I have not gone beyond aging? There are beings who are intoxicated with a typical youth's intoxication with youth. Because of that intoxication with youth, people conduct themselves in a bad way in body, in speech and in mind. But when they often reflect on this fact that I am of the nature to age, that youth's intoxication with youth will either be entirely abandoned or grow weaker. And this same reflection is repeated for sickness and death. So one function of this contemplation is an antidote to conceit, an antidote to the conceit of youth, this precarious satisfaction of feeling younger, feeling that ageing is your experience, not mine letting our identity take up residence in that feeling because once we've identified with youth then we have to try to hold on to it or lose our identity and going to all kinds of painful even self-harming sometimes lengths to try to preserve the appearance of youth or the mind gets very busy trying to reassure ourselves that we're still young enough this comparing mind that Annie was describing so well the other evening. And we can also suffer when we assume the identity of being an older person too. So this reflection can be an antidote also to that, because in the end, it's the identification that's the suffering and not the thing that we've identified with. So what does the Buddha mean by conducting oneself in a bad way, I wonder, when intoxicated with youth? So I do have a few memories, some of you might not, of some quite unskillful things I did as a younger person. This kind of experience that I think I lasted till about the age of 20 of feeling immortal and kind of indulging in some reckless and dangerous behavior as a result of it. And fortunately, uh, you know, I didn't suffer any uh, mishap on that account and also didn't cause mishap to others, but it could easily have happened, and sometimes for us it does. Or we can just find ourselves being unkind or inconsiderate. And even if we're not actively unkind or inconsiderate, maybe in in our speech or in our mind, we can be disparaging and disrespectful and dismissive of people on account of their age. Youth can be very impatient with old age. Ajahn Sumedho used to tell us a story in the monastery about when he was a monk with Ajahn Chah in the first 10 years in Thailand and he was, I think, in his 30s at the time. And um, there was an elderly Thai monk who lived in Wat Papong who was kind of very clumsy and slow and bumbling around and uh, generally sort of made, made noises and messes and so forth. And 
And Ajahn Sumedho found himself getting very averse to him and, and kind of Ajahn Chah, I think, knew everything that was going on anyway. But somehow they were they got into a conversation about Ajahn Sumedho's annoyance with this monk. And Ajahn Chah said to him, he's teaching you. What is he teaching you? And Ajahn Sumedho said, well, yeah, I guess, I guess he's got, you know, good sila. He keeps the monk's rules and, you know, he has good qualities and he's kind. And Ajahn Chah just sort of looked at him and said, he's teaching you about old age. And I remember when Ajahn Sumedho, at the, that, that time when he used to share that story, I used to watch him getting up and down from his seat at the front of the hall on his zabaton and his cushion and notice that he would get up in a slightly awkward and somewhat creaky way and sometimes stumble a little bit as he got up. And I've noticed that I'm beginning to do that too. It's like this getting up and down from the cushion is not the kind of uh, business that it was before sometimes it kind of takes a while for everything to unfold itself and start functioning <coughs> but I, th- I think the most harmful thing to our practice uh, uh, in ignoring the, these, this kind of um, reflection is the intoxication of the mind that kind of chooses delusion. I think Bante talked about the vipalas. Somebody talked about the vipalasas, these distortions of perception, not wanting to see uh, the change in what's inevitably changing, not wanting to know suffering in what is actually suffering, and not wanting to recognise that things aren't me or mine, that there isn't security to be had in things. And our culture goes to tremendous lengths to keep us deluded. So we, you know, we have teenage models on advertising billboards and airbrushed photos and uh, unfeasible photos of celebrities. And then we hide away the signs of aging. We, We hide away our older people. So then when we do this, things aren't seen as they actually are. And if things aren't seen as they actually are, then the escape from them isn't possible. So for me, that moment in that exercise with my partner on this retreat of fully acknowledging how it is was very freeing. And we can do that for ourselves in our meditation, but only when we remember So just to to also remember that, you know, when we notice conceit or this experience of selfing, not to get into a war with it and make it a cause for for self-blame. We can notice it as a as a wake-up bell, as a reminder to remember this body doesn't belong to me. And all these conditions I'm experiencing now are changing and they don't belong to me either. And that this is a chance to see beyond and let go of my identifying and investing my sense of well-being in these things.
So the second contemplation, I am of the nature to sicken, I have not gone beyond sickness. Or we might say, breathing in gently, I lovingly remember this body will sicken. And just reflecting for a moment, how is sickness and injury revealing itself in your experience now or in the past? In this body, externally in the people that you know. So if we're right now, we're healthy, then this contemplation is an antidote to what the Buddha termed a typical healthy person's intoxication with health. And if we're sick, it can help us to acknowledge that this is a natural part of life and not something that says something about us as a person. And we can also see that we're not alone in our experience of sickness. So we can notice the the suffering that comes from um, fighting with reality in relation to the sickness that we might be experiencing. We can notice how it is to fight against the fact that the future is unknowable. We can notice the suffering of conceit around health. That complacent sense of I'm better than you or my life is better than yours because I'm healthier or my life is worse than yours because I'm less healthy. Or maybe I'm better than you because I'm coping with this situation which you don't have to. So we can become aware of our attachments, our identification with health and fitness that contains within it the seeds of, or the fear of loss of health and fitness. So I sometimes notice what happens in my mind when I I notice uh, another person around the place cough or sneeze near me and forget to do their vipassana elbow. Immediately, oh, am I going to get sick? or how we're impacted by the signs of sickness in others. Or we might find that we take the health that we do have for granted and don't take proper care of the body. So this intoxication, it clouds the mind and it distracts us from what's actually here. So in that same Insight Dialogue Retreat, we also did an exploration, I did an exploration with this same partner of just uh, really opening to the presence of illness and injury in our lives and seeing what we could say about how we were experiencing this, how we'd been touched by this. 
And when we spoke to the, the presence of illness or injury in this moment, again, it was interesting to notice that in this moment, there were just these sensations and this memory, these concepts, this breath, this story this moment of awareness and the awareness itself was neither sick nor in pain. And I also found that as we did this and as I do this, when I contemplate in this way, then a sense of compassion and also equanimity begin to arise. So I don't know whether Devon, when she spoke about compassion, uh, shared uh, uh, an expression of compassion from Pema Chodron that I really like, who called compassion is the practice of daring to relax and move gently towards what scares you. I really like that as a perspective on compassion. And of course, the, the scary thing about sickness, illness, is that it reminds us of or even brings us face to face with the third of the heavenly messengers, with death. So the third contemplation, I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. Or we could say, breathing in gently, I lovingly remember this body will die. So how is it to pause and acknowledge that? So when, when we contemplate this or the previous contemplation, it may be that the mind gets stuck on a particular experience that's specially close to us and specially difficult and that uh, the anxiety or the fear or the sadness can feel overwhelming. And if that happens, it might be more skillful to look further afield, to look at others, or if it's another person that you're thinking about, at somebody, other beings who are less closely connected with you. So we open out uh, the scope of our contemplation, or even drop the contemplation altogether and turn to something else. So you might remember, I think it was in the first talk I gave, I talked about the marshmallow experiment. And uh, I seem to talk about chocolate brownies in every talk. But uh, how the, in these tests on how people um, relate to craving and how they manage to uh, delay the impulse towards gratification. Um, they they came up with a model of the mind having uh, a kind of cool mode and a hot mode. So the mind has a capacity to see things coolly from a distance, kind of objectively, maybe we could say externally, or to really vividly imagine them subjectively, a hot system. So you can see the chocolate brownie is just a kind of matte brown square of earth element with a bit sort of dry around the edges. 
or you can imagine the experience of eating it and how that tastes and feels. And if we're trying to resist a craving, then activating the cool perception is really helpful. And apparently these systems are also implicated in the way that we see our future self. So mostly what people tend to do when they imagine their future self, the same bits of the brain light up as when they're thinking of somebody else. There's a kind of distancing and a cooling off. It's like this future self is it's not really me. It's some kind of imaginary being out there. And this can be an adaptive way to manage our anxiety and stay optimistic. But it also can mean that we never really think realistically about our situation. So they've done experiments that show that people who tend to activate the hot system and really put themselves in the shoes of their future selves have been shown to they've been shown to make much more prudent plans for the future and also to behave much more ethically in the present moment so when we try to really try to picture ourselves as our future self there's a, a heating up and this is kind of what the buddha is prompting us to do in these contemplations so that wisdom can arise but I think it's important how we pick these contemplations up you know, at the right time and in an appropriately compassionate way. So I think uh, we've shared this image of grasping the Dharma being or the uh, teachings being like a, a snake that you can grab by the head or by the tail. We need to be careful about how we pick this up. So when we're feeling overly anxious about the future, then maybe it's time to invite the cool system online. So one of the, the contemplations that helps this is the way that to consider that everybody else is subject to these same things. And at other times it might be really helpful to kind of bring forward the subjective piece of it, really uh, imagining ourselves in these situations and heating it up a bit. So in terms of the contemplation that uh, I too am subject to death or that this body is going to die, the Buddha said that for a living person, there's a typical living person's intoxication with life. We don't want to accept the fact that it's going to end. So we can be afraid of, of the dying process itself, but I think we're also afraid of not existing of the ending of what's known and the coming of the unknown. And we go to extraordinary lengths to hide death from one another and from our children, just like the Buddha's father did. So I just often remember how my sister, who's a, a, an oncologist, a doctor, and uh, has seen a lot more of death and probably dead bodies than those of us who aren't in one of those kinds of professions uh, had when her sons my nephews were little they had some goldfish and the goldfish died 
and my sister didn't want the boys to know that the goldfish had died so she ran out very quickly to the shops and bought some new goldfish and replaced the goldfish and pretended that they were the same goldfish and we do this because we don't want to expose our our children or one another to the um, to the fact of death so I had a conversation with Andrea yesterday about when when in our lives we first saw a dead body for the first time and for many of us that doesn't happen uh, for a long long time we don't have many opportunities to actually witness um, witness the fact of death directly this may be, may be that for some of you this is really not the case, this is very different, but I think generally as a society compared with at the time of the Buddha we're much less exposed to this. And therefore when something happens, like I was on a retreat with uh, Utejaniya Gaia House in England and um, there's a kind of loop that people walk, much like the loop here, some lanes around Gaia House and not very far from Gaia House was a fox that had been run over and it happened just at the beginning of the retreat and in the course of um, nine or ten days you know, we had the opportunity to see this fox uh, go through the whole process of, of um, decay. So first of all it looked like a kind of cute sleeping fox and then gradually the body collapsed and became bloated and turned black, started to smell really unpleasant and then uh, maggots appeared and it started to disintegrate and eventually all that left was some, just some bones and some fur. And it was really interesting in the group meetings how much time was spent uh, with people just saying how much they were impacted by contemplating, contemplating this uh, fox. And this is the contemplation, of course, like uh, in the first foundation of mindfulness, uh, the mindfulness of the body. One of the ways of <coughs> contemplating the body is to go to a charnel ground and watch corpses in the process of decay to really understand that this is the nature of the body and that our body is not exempt. So the sutta on the five contemplations continues. Now a disciple of the noble ones considers this. I am not the only one subject to aging who has not gone beyond aging. I am not the only one subject to sickness who has not gone beyond sickness. I am not the only one subject to dying who has not gone beyond dying. To the extent that there are beings, past and future, passing away and re-arising, all beings are subject to aging, have not gone beyond aging. All beings are subject to sickness, have not gone beyond sickness. And all beings are subject to dying, have not gone beyond dying. When he or she often reflects on this, the factors of the path take birth. He or she sticks with that path develops it and cultivates it. And as he or she sticks with that path, develops it and cultivates it, the fetters are entirely abandoned 
and all the underlying tendencies, all the obstacles to liberation are uprooted. So this recognition of the impermanence of these bodies brings about a sense of spiritual urgency, what's called samvega, the motivation to use this precious opportunity of a life, of a human life, and the wish to understand. And I think it's only if we're unafraid to include death that we can really investigate what life is. So when I was uh, a nun at Amaravati in England, um, we had, and there still is, uh, at the back of the the temple, so behind what would be behind the, the Buddha Rupa and the shrine here, is a chapel of rest with a, a beautiful um, picture of a, the reclining Buddha there. And it's a place where friends um, and acquaintances of the monastery can ask to be uh, left for some time when they've died, uh, to be laid out in the chapel of rest. And in some ways it's an act of generosity to the community, to the sangha, the monastic and the lay sangha, so that people are offering their bodies as something that can be contemplated in meditation. And this was really my first um, chance to spend time with with bodies uh, in this way. And it was really interesting to sit, you know, over a period of days from time to time to visit with somebody who I had known. And this happened several times. And just to see that process of change you know that, that uh, a body change even though that there's not a charnel ground it's all very sanitized and people are usually embalmed and so forth but to see how that sense of there being a person there and somebody familiar somebody you knew kind of gradually disappears and this really prompts the question well who who was there in the first place uh, who are we you know what is this thing that we call a human being and in that kind of contemplation there's also a sense of peacefulness that comes so this question you know who am I and who dies who was this person and, and where did they go and people were a different person to each of us there's just a, a set of memories a collection of moments that came together like rainbows and dissolved. And it seems to be even more mysterious when it's somebody that we've been very close to. So one of my close friends who I actually lived with for some time after I um, left the monastery, but it, she'd been around the monastery since uh, way before I even joined it, um, died a few years ago from from cancer and kind of watching her process and then but also as she was gone kind of thinking well where where has she gone and who was this person that I knew and she was someone who contemplated and asked herself those kinds of questions and there was a real kind of grace and acceptance to the way that she accepted her diagnosis and the way that she um, you know went about the last stage of her life and 
probably many of us have known people whose, whose way of approaching death can be a gift and a teaching to those around us. And one of the things I remember her talking about was how she had a one-year-old grandson at that time, a new grandson, and just this poignancy of knowing that she would never find out what happened to her grandson. And that sense that of realizing that we can't and we don't need to know everything that's going to happen, that letting go of the need to know. We know that life will go on. And one thing that we can know as practitioners is that there will be dukkha. There will be the arising of dukkha, the causes of dukkha. There'll be an end to dukkha and there'll be a path out of dukkha. That's kind of pretty much all we can be sure of possibly the three characteristics. So we never know what's going to happen. You know, it can be uh, in many ways a blessing when we have time to prepare for our own death or the death of others, but we never know what's going to happen next and death can come suddenly and unexpectedly. So the practice of Marana Sati or death contemplation, mindfulness of death, uh, is not so much an investigation of what death is, as I was just sort of, uh, talking about, as, as uh, an ever-present awareness that death could come at any moment. So the Buddha said that mindfulness of death, when developed and pursued, is of great fruit and great benefit. It gains a footing in the deathless, has the deathless as its final end, and therefore you should develop mindfulness of death. And he said that you could do this in a number of ways, and two of them were that before you go to sleep at night or after you wake up in the morning, reflect that death could strike at any moment. And he had examples like how you could be bitten by a stake or stung by a centipede or a scorpion, and things that probably are unlikely to happen to us right here, right now, but you never know what's going to happen. He said, practice as if your turban was on fire. Or another thing is just don't assume that you have a day or even an hour for practice. Just that you have this moment, the amount of time that it takes to chew and swallow a mouthful of food or to take one in-breath or one out-breath. So how can we use this teaching? You know, I think uh, not to get tense or tight about it, but to get precise. Because what that, these examples point me to is the fact that practice is always now. And thinking that it, I'm going to do it later, I miss the point. So how is it to contemplate that this could be your last retreat? It, for all of us, this could be the last retreat that we ever do. And if that were the case, what might matter that I might be ignoring now? And what would cease to matter that I might be concerned with? And similarly, if this were my last day, Sometimes do this one to myself. If this were the last Dharma talk I ever gave, 
how would I do it differently? <laughs> kind of stops the mind. Yeah. What is it to stop and become really present? To give a complete yes to this moment. So if we if we use these contemplations to embrace impermanence we could find ourselves not just becoming fearless in the face of death but actually seeing through death itself aging and sickness and death are, are processes that happen in time to a body to a narrative sense of self. But if we let go of the body and we let go of the narrative, what's left? People also used to ask Ajahn Samedo, because he generally used to be the <coughs> oldest person in the community, about death and his attitude to death. And he, he used to say, well, I don't know what death is, but I'm not afraid because I know that I know how to let go. A way that Bhikkhu Analio practices with death contemplation and uh, invites yogis to practice with death contemplation is to contemplate that each breath could be my last breath. Can there be a complete letting go with every outbreath? And again, you know, one has to check whether the mind is in a suitable space to engage in that kind of a practice. It may be that sometimes that really isn't a useful or right practice for us, that we, we, might, we have to be judicious about when we pick it up. But it can be a really interesting thing to do. It really sharpens up our sense of presence, of being right here. There's a, a Canadian teacher uh, trained in indigenous wisdom traditions called Stephen Jenkinson who works with people who are dying and with their families. And one of the things he says that I, I really liked is that you, you can't really love something until you love its ending too. If we really love something, we will let it go its way. And there were those beautiful words from Mathieu Ricard last night. This sense that all conditioned phenomena arise and dissolve like a rainbow. There's a, a freedom of realizing that there isn't actually anything to hold on to. And, and this is why the Buddha said that mindfulness of death when developed and pursued is of great fruit and great benefit. It gains a footing in the deathless and has the deathless as its final end. So there's a story that the, the 16th Kamapa, when he was dying from cancer in a hospital in Chicago, was surrounded by 
uh, a group of his students and they were all concerned and anxious and he saw their their concern and he smiled at them and he said don't worry nothing happens and Andrea told me another story also yesterday about a, a Zen master who was also on his deathbed and I don't know what he was dying from but he was still able to to take a little bit of food and so his students brought him a really delicious cake and he ate a little bit of the cake and then he settled back in his pillows and they they sat with him and they leant in you know hoping for some last words of wisdom from the master and said uh, master do you have anything to say to us you know i think like the last words of the buddha was a strive on with diligence or whatever and this then master said mm, that cake was really delicious <laughs> <laughs> so this teaching that there's just this moment you know just the rainbow, just this moment being known. Breathing in gently, I lovingly remember this body is aging. Breathing in gently, I lovingly remember this body will sicken. Breathing in gently, I lovingly remember this body will die. Breathing in gently, I lovingly remember that loss is part of life. Breathing in gently, I lovingly remember to meet this moment with wisdom. <laughs> 